I've appreciated week in and week out how our worship team has helped us reflect on the hope that we have as a result of the coming of Jesus in human flesh. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. I decided to call something of an audible this week in relationship to our worship team. Instead of talking about the wise men, the magi, as we have traditionally done on this Sunday throughout the year, instead, I thought we would take just a moment and in verses 22 of Luke 22 and following to introduce you to the last two figures who are present at the infancy of Jesus in the Gospels. Priest named Simeon and a prophetess named Anna. Uh, we know the wise men will visit not the baby in the stable or the inn or the room or whatever we want to call that, but they'll visit the young child in the house, probably when his parents arrived back in Nazareth, maybe several years that have gone by. So the last two people who were actually present here in the infancy of Jesus that are highlighted in the gospel for us are Simeon and Anna. So the first thing that I'd like to do this morning is tell you a little bit about who they are and their unique contribution to biblical history. After we're introduced to Simeon and Anna, then what I'd like to do is to pivot. And so the second part of this sermon, and if you're keen in getting out of here in any reasonable amount of time, you may be especially observant of when we make that transition somewhere near the middle or third of the way through the sermon, is to take an observation based on all of the figures that we've met so far over the last five weeks. Joseph, Mary, Zechariah, Elizabeth, the angels, the shepherds, Simeon, and Anna. What do they all have in common? I know that's a little different from how we normally approach a text, taking just a few verses and exegeting out of them what they have to say to us. But I want to entertain this question, and I'll tell you at the beginning, it's not inductive, we'll arrive at it here at the very first. What qualities and characteristics did all of these folks share together that made them so uniquely capable of their contributions here at the first advent of Jesus? What did they all have in common? And as we think about what it means to follow Jesus Christ in anticipation of his second coming, what can we learn about those qualities and characteristics so that we too can be prepared for the arrival of our God and King? How were they uniquely equipped for his first coming? And how, we, how may we be uniquely equipped for his second coming? So there are the two things that we're going to try to achieve this morning. We start in Luke, verse, uh, Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 22. Let me go ahead and read a little bit here, and we'll talk a little bit about who Simeon and Anna are. Luke records this, starting in verse 22. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they, that's Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And if we were examining parts of Exodus 13 or Leviticus 12, you'd be familiar with the ritual that has to be entertained there. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there were uh, innumerable things that could have been offered. These were the options that were available to those who were of a lower socioeconomic class. Uh, this is, I suppose, before one of the magi has brought them a sack of gold something like that. 
And so here we are offering an, just a week and change out of the first few days of Jesus turtle doves or young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's a packed statement. We'll unpack that just momentarily. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That is, before he had seen the arrival of the Messiah. Christ is the New Testament term for Messiah, or Messiah, the anointed one. And he came here in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Again, Luke is hitting on the same themes repeatedly in these earliest chapters and verses of his gospel. This is an opportunity for all people in all places to yield in fealty and faith to the God King. Verse 33, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. A couple of things we learn right out of the gate here about Simeon. A priest, introduced here in verse 25, is a lot like Joseph and Mary and others that we've witnessed already. We get a sense just from a surface reading of the text that he is faithful and he is obedient and he is expectant and he is in a long list of figures that we have been introduced to over the last few weeks who are extraordinary models of what it means to anticipate and to live in obedience to the coming Christ. And he's waited a long time to see him. He got a promise. You will not die, the Lord has told him, before you have seen the Messiah. I would love to have such a promise about the second arrival of Jesus, wouldn't you? I've known that there were many, many people over many, many years who thought that it was only a moment away from the second coming of Jesus. And many of them have already passed on and have seen him in the spirit. Eventually, there is coming a day when Jesus will physically return to his earth and reign for a thousand years. But here we have Simeon who sees the child in the flesh. Here's no great announcement. Hey, all of you in here, guess what? The Messiah has finally come. But Simeon knows. Simeon takes one look at this baby. This is him. And then he says here, starting in verse 28, he takes him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. Again, a term that's used repeatedly in these early chapters of Luke, this peace that is brought to the world, the peace that is announced by the angels is the same sort of peace that is starting to affect Simeon. I was restless. I was angry. I was confused. I was lost. And now, finally, the object and person of my peace has come. And it's come in the form of this young baby. He does two things in his little prophecy here, if you want to call it a prophecy. First, he recognizes the fulfillment in the coming of this little baby of the promises extended to Israel. And there's two promises that he talks about here. 
The first is to extend glory to Israel, right? Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The coming of this child, here is this baby, in some means matters to Israel because it is glorifying for them. They are exalted. The child who would come to Israel is an Israelite. The Savior of the Jews is himself a Jew. Go ahead and turn back to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Now, when we were studying Luke's gospel, we talked often about how, how much Jesus likes the Old Testament and just how often he quoted books like Deuteronomy, right? And uh, even in our studies so far in Hebrews, we've talked about how much the author of Hebrews loves the Old Testament, particularly the book of Psalms. But one of the books that's quoted as much virtually as any other in the New Testament is Isaiah. And if you're going to read uh, in these next coming weeks and months, and I, I hope that you do have a reading plan in place for 2020, um, you will not achieve any sort of goal in biblical literacy unless you set an agenda right from the get-go. I'm just giving you that as a heads up here ahead of time. You'll find just how readable the book of Isaiah is. Uh, Jeremiah can be a little depressing. Ezekiel can be a little confusing. Isaiah is illuminating among the major prophets. But here in Isaiah 46, take a look at uh, verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in where? Or who? Zion. For Israel, my glory. When Simeon sees this child, he recognizes in part that this particular prophecy from Isaiah 46 is beginning to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So there are these promises that are made here to Israel. The first is that they would be glorified. The second is that the gospel would be taken to the entirety of the world. Flip over just a couple of pages to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, we find this, here's the good news, the gospel got to all the earth, even though the promise was made to the Jewish people and the promise was made of a Jewish Messiah. The Jewish Messiah would fulfill promises that extend throughout the Old Testament canon. It would be good news for all the people. This son of Abraham would be a blessing to the entirety of the earth. He says in verse 6, it is... Is it uh, too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the very ends of the earth. We are a part of that program, that promise that is starting to be fulfilled here in Luke chapter 2. When Simeon sees this child, he sees that there is hope now, not just for the Jewish people, not just for Mary and Joseph, not just for him and the others who are present here at the circumcision of Jesus. There is hope for everyone. This is a Savior who will offer a sacrifice grand enough and full enough and expansive enough to cover all those who would believe. In this way, the gospel is terribly exclusive in that you have to believe, but terribly inclusive as well in that it's not cut off from anyone who would believe. 
rich, poor, black, white, Republican, Democrat. It doesn't matter. If you would believe in the Christ, you may be saved. It's good news for all people. So this is what he does. The first thing he does is he says, look, I want you to know there is this extraordinary thing that is being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Israel is being glorified. The Gentiles now have a hope, the likes of which they have never yet known. But here's the second thing he does. He predicts the disruptive nature of Jesus. Take a look again at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, and you would expect something encouraging, wouldn't you? If you had just had a baby and I came and visited you in the hospital and talked about the terrible consequences of the existence of your child, that's kind of a, I think the technical word is, uh, that's a bummer, right? That's a, this is a real downer, but it's, it's sobering. I want you to see the intensity with which he prophesies here. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What is it that Jesus is coming to do? Jesus is coming in order to divide the world. This is essentially what Simeon is arguing here. When Jesus comes and offers hope to many, many will say, I recognize that I am lost in my sin and that this child is the one who can save me from that sin. They're over here. Others are going to say, I do not believe. I am unwilling to yield. I will not repent of my sin. I do not believe that is the great grand problem in history. I do not believe that Jesus is the solution to that problem, and they will be over here. It's something that Luke talks about a fair amount. In uh, Luke chapter 12, we talk about fathers and sons and mothers and daughters being rent from each other, right? In Matthew 25, we talk about how there's a difference between Jesus separating the sheep from the goats. And in Luke chapter 19, we hear this devastating discussion from Jesus as he's coming in through the triumphal entry. He's there on Mount Olivet, and he's looking over Jerusalem. And here he is about to march into the city to offer his life as a sacrifice. Here is the moment, the moment when the Savior has come to do his saving work. And what is his pronouncement as he looks over the nation of Israel? He weeps. He weeps because he knows that as the sign, he is fulfilling exactly what would be said of him by Simeon decades earlier. There are those who will greet him in the city shouting, Hosanna, he who comes to save in the name of the Lord. And there are others, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who will gather around the cross and shall crucify him. Many will rise. Many others will fall. He is discerning the hearts of the people. And then in what is a terrible, and what must have been extremely lonely for Mary, he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul also. Two options there for what he means, I think, two prominent options at least. The first is, He's saying, you're going to see your son's side pierced. John's gospel will highlight that, even if Luke's doesn't. You'll see your own side, uh, your own son's side pierced. And in that moment, it'll be like your own soul being pierced as well. I I think that's a 
a likely option for what Simeon is prophesying here. But there's another, and, and maybe less graphic, but more expansive. Maybe he's not talking specifically about the crucifixion. Maybe he's just alluding to the fact that Jesus will be the most divisive figure in human history. Families torn apart, a nation torn apart, a religion torn apart, in a division that exists now still 2,000 years later. Mary's son will do that. She'll see the extraordinarily divisive work of Jesus, even as he's the one who brings light to the entirety of the world. Sobering, sobering reflections. Now, uh, immediately afterward, and we get no direct quotes from Anna, but she's a fascinating figure in her own right. Verse 36, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And so you get this sense of her life. So she was a young woman. She got married. She was married for seven years. Her husband died. And from then until 84, she has been a widow. And this is why she has spent her time as a widow. And then as a widow, verse 37, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's this woman. She has a lot in common with Hannah. Their names are the same in the Hebrew Bible, Hannah and Anna. You'll remember the story of Hannah there early on in the chapters of 1 Samuel. She prayed for a son. Here is this one older woman, unlikely to have a child, and miraculously she's gifted a son. But the story of Hannah is the story of waiting. Same thing with Anna. Here is this old widow, apparently with no children, and the son that she's been waiting for? Well, she's been waiting for the Messiah. And she's been waiting for a very, very long time. And just as Hannah was given Samuel as a son, so now the dream of a child who would come and be her deliverer is fulfilled for Anna as well. And she gets to witness this. And then, I love this, she absolutely can't keep it to herself. She speaks of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Her prayers, her prayers answered, she passionately proclaims the arrival of the Messiah. Two incredible figures, Simeon and Anna. People we don't talk about nearly enough. Well, what do they share in common? Not just with each other, but with Mary and Joseph, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, with the shepherds, with the angels. What do all of these figures have in common? And so if you'll allow me a little latitude here, I'd like to give you seven things. And I didn't give you uh, notes this week, but you got a piece of paper or a scrap. You may want to write some of these down. I think some of these would be helpful as we reflect on what these figures all have in common here. Seven things, seven commonalities, seven ways in which these unique set of people we're equipped to deal with the first arrival of Jesus. And in the back of our minds, we're perpetually asking the question, how can we be similarly equipped to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus? Hopefully these are questions that you're asking. Because you're not in an extraordinarily different situation from the situation that they found themselves in in the first century. They were desperate for the arrival of the Messiah and knew that it could happen at any moment. We are desperate for the second arrival of the Messiah, recognizing that it could happen at any moment. How can we be prepared like they were? Number one, 
They were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. Elizabeth in 141, it says that she's Spirit-filled. Zechariah in 167, Spirit-filled. Simeon, three times here in chapter 2, uh, 25, 26, 27, I think it is, said that he is filled by the Spirit and directed by the Spirit. Now, uh, just a brief lesson here in pneumatology. That's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, right? When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you are indwelled by the Spirit. It's instantaneous. It never goes away. You are sealed in the Spirit forever. It never changes. Uh, ain't no uh, mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep you away from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's final. It's happened. But we find in passages, not only like this one, but especially you might think of Ephesians chapter 5, this commendation to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you see the word filled with the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about indwelling. We're talking about control. So when you hear the word indwelling, or it's not indwelling, uh, filling, I want you to think the word control. Filling, control. Filling, control, right? You can, if you so desire, even as a believer, even one indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you can grieve the Spirit by working against the control that He is exerting over in your life. When I first started learning how to drive, I went to driving class, they make you sit through the videos, this is how you make a left-hand turn, this is how you make a right-hand turn, this is how you use the turn lane, which apparently that course gets lost in North Carolina, no one's exposed to how to use a turn lane. If you want to uh, understand the things that make me angriest in the world, it's anything related to Davo uh, Swinney and people not knowing how to use the turn lane. So these are the things that frustrate me. They send a lady to the house, and she's going to teach me how to drive, and uh, here we get into her uh, special car. It's like a Ford Escort. Um, she's 175 years old. Um, she is to me what I am to John Lucas, right? And she is wedged into the passenger seat of this car, uh, with glasses that are thicker than the windows in the president's motorcade. And she has a brake on the passenger side of the car. And every two blocks, it doesn't matter how slow I'm driving, she is freaked out by something and jams on the brake. What was that? Well, there was a car. No, that's a White Castle. I don't think it's going to get us from the side, right? And it goes on like this for the next three or four weeks. We'd be in the drive-thru. She would say, uh, here's a great thing for you to practice. Let's go through the drive-thru at Dairy Queen so you can buy me a slushie. Uh-huh. That's for my practice. I see that we have arrived at this particular strategy. Uh, and every time a car would advance and I'd hit the gas, she'd immediately stamp on that brake, that little extra brake pedal down there. And she didn't have a wheel. She didn't have an accelerator. She just had that brake pedal. And there are an awful lot of people in the Christian life the Spirit is driving that car, and you are making it absolutely as difficult as possible by stomping on that brake. Paul tells you to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you will not release control of what's happening in that car. Now look, the Spirit will get you to those ends. We find from passages like there in Philippians chapter 1 that he is doing a good work, and you will complete that work. It will happen. But you can make that happen as miserably and as slowly and as dangerously as possible. You have that capacity, it appears from the New Testament to grieve the Spirit and only make your life worse. Just jamming on that pedal, jamming on that pedal. Heard a story a couple of weeks ago about a family that, in a little girl's room, I think she was seven or eight years old, they had installed a smart camera there in the corner of the room. It had a microphone feature in it. It was wireless, hooked up to all the other functions in the house. And somebody hacked that thing. 
And in the middle of the night, they heard this voice emanating out of their daughter's room. And it was some creeper in the neighborhood who was trying to convince the little girl that he was Santa Claus and was having a conversation with her there in the middle of the night. They were no longer in control over what was happening there with the camera in their daughter's room. What all of these people have in common is that they are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the question that emanates out of passages like this one and the observation that they were almost unanimously filled with the Holy Spirit is this. As we prepare for the second coming of Jesus, who's controlling you? Are you controlling you, or is the Spirit controlling you? If we look at Simeon and Zechariah and Elizabeth, we find that they were all bound together and that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, they were persistent in hope. They were persistent in hope. We find this of Simeon, that he had waited long, hard years for the arrival of the Messiah. The same thing here with Anna. She had waited her whole long life that she might witness the arrival of the Messiah. But they were full of hope. The promise had been made to Simeon, and he grasped onto that promise. I know that the Lord will do this for me. Now, there's a couple of ways to use the word hope. I I need you to give you a very specific definition. Here's what it is. And if you write it down or you just tuck it away in your memory, this is what you have to think about when you think about biblical hope. Two words. Confident expectation. Confident expectation. Now, in the way that we use the word hope in modern English, it can mean uh, we can uh, hope in something that we know will never, ever happen, right? Uh, We could hope that uh, unicorns will descend uh, from the clouds and bring us leprechauns carrying pots of gold, right? That's an unreasonable hope. That is not the kind of way that the New Testament specifically talks about hope. When it talks about hope, it talks about confident, reasonable expectation. Something you know is coming that just hasn't come yet. So uh, in our house, we had an advent calendar, a Lego advent calendar. And starting on December 1st, you punch a little box open and maybe you get a little Lego snowblower or a little Santa or a little whatever it is. And every day we would punch that box open after dinner and the girls would put together their little Lego deal. And now, having done that for a few years, we've got a whole shelf full of little Lego Christmassy stuff because we are living in confident expectation that December 25th is going to come. It has every year right after December 24th. That is a reasonable expectation that 25 comes after 24. And so it is here for these people who are living in anticipation of the Messiah. Their hope isn't unfounded. It's not vague. It's not persistent in the ether. It's a real, tangible, confident expectation that the Lord would send his Messiah. And i got to tell you, there are an awful lot of people here today who would, I think, intellectually state, I believe that Jesus is coming again. But never think about Jesus coming again. And don't live like Jesus could imminently arrive again and have no substantial witness to the world relaying to them the confident expectation that Jesus is coming again. If you're going to have a lesson transmuted from these pages here early in Luke and bring it into your own life, let it at least be this. God makes outrageous promises, and he keeps all of them, not least of which, I sent the Messiah once to save you. I'll send him again to fulfill what he started at his first advent. 
Do you live in that confident expectation? Because the early chapters of Matthew and Luke and the infancy story of Jesus push you and compel you to that kind of hope. Thirdly, they were trusting of signs. They were trusting of signs. They were filled with the Spirit. They were persistent in hope. They were trusting of signs. Now, a little history lesson here. We go back to Isaiah chapter 7. And unto uh, this particular generation, there is a child who will be born, will be born of a virgin as a sign to Israel. There was a king in the southern kingdom of Judah, and this is after Israel had split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, a king in the southern kingdom called Ahaz. And Ahaz is in a particularly difficult situation here some centuries before Jesus ever arrived. You see, there's a great new power in the world, and the power's name is Assyria, and Assyria is about to go to war with the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel gets together with Syria and a couple of other friends and says, let's gang up together and we'll fight against Assyria. And we'll show them we can't be pushed around. And they go to Judah, to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and say, hey, let's get together. You join us in our little, you know, coalition of the maybe not so willing, and we'll go fight against Assyria. But the Lord had told Ahaz, no, no, no. Don't join with Israel and Syria and all those others. You let me take care of you. I'm the one who's going to defend you. Don't don't go follow that asinine plan. You stick with me. The plan is me. I'm going to secure you into future generations. And to prove that I am going to do that, ask for a sign. Go ahead, ask for a sign. Now, this is really unusual. If you spend any amount of time reading the Bible, you know that usually asking for a sign is a bad thing. Gideon in Judges, asks for a sign. He's told to wage war in the ways of God, and instead he says, well, I'm not so sure. I'm going to throw out this fleece. You remember this, the fleece? And Lord, if you would just let all the other ground be dry, but that fleece in the morning be wet with dew, well, then I'll know you're really in charge, right? And the Lord does it for whatever reason known only to his sovereignty. And Gideon goes, "Mm, uh, maybe that's a weird fluke. The next time, I'm going to throw out the fleece and let the fleece be dry and let everything else be wet with dew. And God does it again because he's not going to let Gideon off the hook. (laughs) But it's a sign of his weakness that he doesn't trust in the Lord. Interestingly, the people who ask for signs most in the New Testament are Pharisees. Just give us a sign. Just give us a sign. And repeatedly, they're rebuked. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah who didn't do what God called him to do and was sent down to the depths of the earth. That's the only sign you're going to get from me. Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, the king is told to ask for a sign, and he won't do it. Now, he answers kind of piously, well, I don't want to test the Lord. But it was the Lord who told you to ask for a sign in the first place. You had better do it. And he refuses. He doesn't want to trust in the Lord. He does not have faith that the Lord is going to preserve them. So the Lord says, all right, if you won't ask for a sign, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. A virgin is going to give birth to a baby. There's your sign. That's miraculous. And it's going to serve as proof that I can do exactly what I say I'm going to do. You can trust in me. Now, there was a young child born there in Isaiah chapter 8. 
But we find that Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, when he's talking about all of these incredible things that the Lord is doing through the birth of Jesus, cites that exact same passage, Isaiah 7, 14, saying, here is a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, born to a virgin. Now that's incredible. That's incredible that God would send a miraculous sign. It's equally incredible that anybody would believe that God sends miraculous signs. But what we find here, the angel in verse 12 says, I am sending to you a sign. It will be a sign to you. Simeon in uh, verse 34, right? Here is a sign the Lord is providing for you about what it is that the Messiah will do and who this Messiah actually is. And they believed in these signs. The angel said, here's a sign. And they believed. They believed in the sign. Look, ever since we were shuttled out of Eden, the primary question of our existence has been this. Do I trust God? Do I trust God? Do I trust his character? Do I trust his plans? Do I trust that he is telling me the truth? He gave them an extraordinary number of signs, and they trusted that he was telling the truth. Do you believe that he's telling the truth? When he says that he will send his Messiah, that he will wage war against those who have rebelled against him, but for all who would believe, they might be redeemed in glorified bodies and live with him forever? Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Do you have faith in those promises? If we're getting ready for the second coming of Jesus, you had better well. It's what defined them, defined this incredible group of people before Jesus' first coming. It had better well define us before his second. Fourthly, they were eager worshipers. They were eager worshipers. The angels break forth over the sky, the heavenly host, and they worship the Lord. Mary hears these indelible truths about who her child is, and she treasures these things in her heart. She worships him. And I love this, uh, the shepherds, right? The shepherds marvel at all these incredible things and immediately run out into the night and tell whoever will listen to them. They were eager for worship. I've been on a quest over the last year or so to find the best cheeseburger in Rocky Mountain. I've been to Prime Smokehouse. I've been to Central Cafe. We went to uh, Western Sizzlin', which has a pretty decent burger by itself, lousy fries. Uh, we've been all over the place looking for the best burger, and so I've had this conversation, I know, with several of the men in our church, and we've been trying to find this the greatest burger in Nash County. And you know what? Every time somebody says, man, I, I'm really hungry for a burger, I'll, I'll say, oh, man, I'll tell you where you should go. You should definitely go. I am eager to recommend a cheeseburger but not all, always eager to recommend Jesus. Isn't that a profoundly stupid thing? I am eager to rave about a small piece of beef on a griddle covered in American cheese, which, by the way, uh, if, if you're lactose intolerant, you can still eat that cheese. John told me. He's a doctor. <laughs> cheese. <laughs> I will sing the praises of barley and burger because it tastes good. Will I sing the praises of the one who does incredible things for me? Who cares not only for my body, but also my soul? Not for a moment or a day, but for an eternity? 
they were eager to worship. Look, when you come into this room on Sunday mornings, you are not primarily here to get something. Do you know that? You are here to give something. And I'm not talking about the contributions you make in the plate. I'm talking about worship. We are here on Sunday mornings, not primarily to learn. Though learning can be a part of worship, not even primarily to sing, though singing is certainly a part of worship. But in our cores, in the most central parts of who we are, to say, God, you are worthy of every incredible thing that we could ascribe to you because of who you are and what you've done. That's why you're here. What you put in is more important to me than what you get out. So we sing. When we sing, we sing. When we open the text, open the text. We explore it together. It's part of our worship. He's earned it this week, I can promise you. So we reflect it back to him. Fifthly, they were radically obedient. They were radically obedient. It's one thing to listen to all of these incredible proclamations and to assent to them intellectually, but those people had to turn around and then actually do something. They weren't just intellectually stimulated by the arrival of the angels. They were compelled to do something. Joseph, would you believe that your young betrothed is pregnant by miraculous means and the sovereignty of God? And Joseph says, yes. All right, now, now that's step one. Step two, go marry her and live with all the consequences of being the stepfather to the Messiah. Now that is, that is entirely a different thing altogether. They weren't just hearers. They were doers. As we get ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ, we must be about the work of Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that? Our churches are filled on Sunday mornings just like this one with a whole host of people who listen very well and don't do hardly anything at all. How are you fulfilling the Great Commission? How are you building the kingdom of God? How are you taking the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth? How are you loving patiently and kindly? How are you caring for your neighbors as above your own selves? If we want to get ready for Jesus to come again, we have to be reflecting Jesus' work. That's exactly what they were doing here. They listened to what God had told them to do, and they did it. No excuses, full stop, period. Sixthly, they were biblically knowledgeable. They were biblically knowledgeable. Mary, right? Jeff saying this morning, Mary, did you know? And we can arrive with some certainty that she knew an awful lot. Zechariah in the Benedictus, gives us a veritable theology lesson about who the Messiah will be and what he's going to do. Elizabeth is extraordinarily astute at recognizing what's happening here. Simeon knows the Bible well. My goodness, it seems like he just got done reading Isaiah when he started writing this prophecy here in verses 29 through 32. Anna, Anna knows the prophecies well. She has studied the word. Do you know the word well? Now, that, I'm not saying, do you agree with what I say here on Sunday morning? That, that you think that I know the word well, and that you go, yeah, I bet he's right. That's not what I'm saying. Do you know the word well? Have you embraced it? 
Are you ready, like they were ready, to see what God is doing and to join in on the escapades of the faithful in anticipation of his second coming? Do you know the word well? Uh, we coached soccer this fall. Laura was head coach. We had a little soccer team. And uh, here were the big lessons that we had to practice every week. They were four to six years old. Number one, have fun. Number two, don't pick up the ball. Don't pick up the ball. Number three, you know, whatever. Don't pick up the ball. And invariably, this is what happened every game, right? Middle of the game, we play four eight-minute quarters, which is way too long for a four-year-old. Somebody would get spaced out. They get really frustrated. Nine kids grouped together. One writhing mass here on the, and you know what some kid does? He picks up the ball. And then he starts running. And I tell you what was really entertaining for us was he didn't always run in the same direction. Sometimes he ran toward our goal, threw it in. Sometimes running back, tucked it in, ran to the other side. You just couldn't predict where they were going to go, right? At four, that's really cute. At, at, at five, it's understandable. At six, it's aggravating, right? At 45, it's unconscionable. At 55, it's a sin. Which way are you going? Do you know? Do you know how this works? I mean, soccer is a game. It's a game that we play. But the work that we have been called to do in the kingdom of God requires your familiarity with these certain parameters for pleasing and honoring and glorifying him. Do you know? When you were a kid, you may have been ignorant, and that was okay. It was even kind of cute. As a grown-up, it's embarrassing, and it's detrimental to you and to all the people around you. I've been wondering over the last few days if Jesus would wait to return until we were as biblically literate as those people in these chapters were when he came the first time. And if we're waiting for that kind of biblical literacy, I wonder if we'll be waiting a very long time. The new year starts Wednesday. Now, that's an arbitrary date to start reading the Bible, right? That's fine. Let it be arbitrary. Let me recommend some things to you. Go buy a Bible that you can read. I feel like I say this uh, like a broken record every year at multiple stages. Go buy a Bible that you can read. Uh, if uh, you are uh, maybe not super familiar with the King James Version, but the only Bible you have is a teen study Bible that somebody gave you in five-point font from 1974, and the pages are falling out, and Ezekiel's gone, and Ephesians is missing chapter 5, and, and it's in the King James, and you have no, uh, you might as well be reading Much Ado About Nothing, right? Then you go find a Bible that you can actually read. I would encourage you to invest in a nice one. I would. Uh, this is a, a nice Bible I bought. I use it every day. If I take care of it, it's going to last longer than I am especially considering how many interceptions our quarterback threw last night. <laughs> I may not last that long. People will spend $1,000 on a cell phone and $100 a month on the bill. They'll spend $12 a month on cable. They'll spend however many dollars on Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus. And, but you tell them to buy a Bible for 100 bucks, and they look at you like you've just dropped a nuclear bomb on their finances, right? This is the book that brings us life. It is the truth about God from God himself. Get a Bible, read the Bible, be invested. 
7. They were all sterling evangelists. They were all sterling evangelists. They didn't keep it to themselves. Not only the angels, not only the shepherds, but I love how it says here of Anna in verse 30, 38. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Who are you speaking this truth to? About the redemption of the world, about the redemption of those who would yield in faith, about the redemption of poor old sinners entirely dependent on Jesus. Who are you shouting and proclaiming and rejoicing and praising this good news to? Because I'll tell you, if you're not, we might as well just shut the doors, we're done. I have no interest in growing in 2020 as a church if we're just going to steal believers from other churches, <laughs> right? If that's our grand strategy here, let's be more churchy about the way we do church so we can get more church people to come to our church. I'm out. You should be out too. That's ridiculous. But we have actual hope. We have real peace. We have something that lasts forever. And we treat it like less than the best burger in town. I love the way that Anna can't keep it to herself. I love the way the shepherds go about proclaiming the good news to everybody. And this is fundamental to who we are. Understand this, that as a church, our marching orders, not only today, but in 2020 and beyond, we exist to, what's the word? What's the verb? Proclaim God's glory and grace. And proclaim is exactly what we're going to do. We'll do it together. We'll do it individually. But proclamation is key here. All of this to say, and there's much, much more that could be observed about all of these figures, but all of that to say this, they were ready. They were ready. They were ready for when it would come. One of my favorite shows, talking about just like uh, junk reality TV, and I'm obsessed with watching like the dumbest stuff ever. But for a couple of years on A&E or one of those channels, there were these doomsday preppers. Remember that? And they would buy, like, old school buses and bury them underground and put air conditioning and filters and all that kind of stuff. I got obsessed with that. I, I, I love zombies, and the natural correlation is watching shows about how to prep for doomsday, right? And they would buy ridiculous things like five-gallon buckets full of beans when, you know, who eats that many beans? And we've got enough tomatoes for 20 years, and... We've got a forge. I'm teaching my seven-year-old how to make swords out of... But they're ready. <laughs> now look, there are extraordinary things happening, true things happening, Jesus things happening. Are you ready? Are you ready to serve like Joseph was ready to serve? His heart was ready. So was Mary's and Elizabeth's and Simeon's and Anna's. They had saturated themselves in the word. And they were ready for obedience. They were ready to believe. They were ready to trust in God. You will never be ready by accident. You, you will never just accidentally happen upon readiness. Readiness is earned. It's worked for. It takes time. It may be exhausting. But it's the work that we've been called to do. And it's the work that results in God tabernacling among us forever. So there's the good news. There's the hope. God was very far away, and God came near. He who was rich became poor, so that you who were poor could become rich. 
rich not in dollars and cents, but rich in the presence of God, rich in the kind of righteousness that makes us worthy to live with him forever. Are you ready? They were. Let's be like them. Let's get ready. Father, I pray that you would get all of our hearts and minds ready. Help us to believe the truth. Help us to listen to the truth. Help us to trust in the truth. And help us to move our hands and feet and mouths and bodies and motivations and assumptions full of the Spirit, entirely controlled by Him, to follow your agenda, to glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.